to me. Right. Her, fa- her, her father was there. <laughs> just, you um, know. I'm just, the worst. I could just keep talking or you can wait till we're. Her father was with the agency. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> you mean I shouldn't podcast with a bagel bite in my mouth? <laughs> I don't think anybody heard it. <laughs> Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. I finally found a beautiful, carefree girl, unconcerned about the future. Welcome to They Coined It. Hey, Roberta. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm really good. I am super. This is an episode. This is an episode. <laughs> and it happens over thank, uh, it's not Thanksgiving, over Halloween. And, you know, I, I'm interested in things like, you know, I don't know if this was in the 10s or 20s or something. Was Halloween a big family thing in the streets and the and the trick-or-treat? I guess, I, you know, I don't know. I know there's a whole history there. But certainly by the mid-60s, uh, kids were, you know, hopping to to. to go out and get the candy and come back and everything and the the costumes and so forth. But um, what we didn't have was Sterling Cooper and all the adults uh, doing a Halloween party. Right. We no, didn't no, no. have everybody talking about Halloween for two weeks prior to Halloween. Uh, it wasn't an in-store end-dial cap for three weeks of Halloween whatnot, right? The Halloween was basically the day. It, it, it came and it went. That's a really fun, that's a fun view. I, I can date it to, we definitely had events in school. Sure. We definitely had, it was a, I mean, you can imagine little theatrical me. It was my favorite thing, right? It was my mm-hmm. excuse to dress up. It was my excuse to, to put on makeup. I remember actually having a very similar uh, thing that Sally had where I really wanted the store. Oh, no, no. It was my grandmother brought me. Uh, the store-bought, like, Cinderella with the horrible hard plastic mask and the giant eyes. And my mom was always into the the homemade costumes. Right. And um, I think I ended up not wearing it. Like, she bought it for me, whatever it was, a week early. And by the time it was Halloween, I, I wasn't going to wear that thing on my face. <laughs> but I was enchanted with that plastic the way Sally was, right? Right, right. For us, it was Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back, Carter. That's perfect. It was a Vinnie Barbarino the, with the mask and the... <laughs> The elastic over the back, yeah. Oh, my God. But I do, I can't give you a timeline, but I remember watching it progress to, because the colors of Halloween were orange and black. And at some point around the 80s, that that, uh, witch lime green and bright purple became like the next colors of Halloween. And, And that was part, and that was in there as Halloween got bigger and bigger and bigger to where now it is the... I think it is the number two decor sold, like Halloween, yeah. you know, whatever. Like After people, like Christmas. Yeah, yeah. it's it's as big it's as insane. it's almost as big as Christmas. It's insane. Here's all you need to know to recognize how this shift has impacted things. Okay, I, this has been published. This is a, a I'd say fairly well known story, but but somehow not everybody knows it. Um, sometime in the '90s, you may remember. Uh, I think it was the '90s, maybe early 2000s, but the the daylight savings ends now in like the first week of November, the first Saturday night into Sunday in November. It used to be for a million years in October, late October. The story of why that change was made sort of like suddenly and without much explanation really has to do with the candy industry, the candy lobby. Hershey and Nestle and the candy 
big wigs, big, big sugar, had to <laughs> lobby the shit out of Congress to make this change. Why? Because an extra hour of daylight for trick-or-treating would mean millions and millions and millions of more candy sold, consumed. And they, 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 pay, they, they, they pasted it as a safety issue. Streets and cars and traffic and kids and you don't want you don't want it to be dark out. I mean, for a million years it was dark during trick or treat. Now it's lighter during trick or treat, and this was 100% due to that change by the candy industry sometime 20 years, some years ago. It's amazing. I did know about the change, but I had no idea about the lobbying. That's fascinating. Oh, the years and years of lobbying. Amazing, amazing. So yes, this was this was pre pitch black. At at five forty five, trick or treating, and uh, you know, hey, different now, but still somewhat the same, which was nice. It was nice to see the little. I love the little uh, crystal ball that Sally was holding in her hand. Very cute. She looks <sighs> okay. The Gypsy and the Hobo, written by Marty Knoxon, Catherine Humphreys, and Matthew Weiner, directed by Jennifer Getzinger. Original air date was October 25th, 2009, and takes place over October 28th through October 31st, Halloween, 1963. This is where Roger's old flame, Annabelle, comes back and she discusses business and tries to rekindle things with Roger. Um, Her dog food brand isn't doing well. Greg Harris isn't enthusiastic about this switch from being a surgeon to a psychiatrist. Betty and William clash over their father's house now that he's gone, and Betty confronts Don about not being Don. So there's that. It's kind of a big thing. This was an episode that rocked the fans and the world. <laughs> I mean, it really was. Uh, so there's a there's oof, it's such it's such a wonderful episode. My take is that this is is one of these famous you know plot episodes in in, in that obviously it's Betty confronting Don. It's as I've said before, the, the the dog catching the rabbit and now the consequences of that. So plot-wise, it's very consequential. It's monumental, in fact, from that standpoint. But that, in a way, that kind of hides some of these themes that I think are also very prominent here. And you, with, with Mad Men, it's those, it's those episodes that are both theme-driven and plot-driven that sort of get the heart racing. So this is definitely one of them, and that, that's really interesting to me. So the way they do it is phenomenal. Yeah, a couple different themes that we we saw that touched the different the different scenarios and storylines. One of them uh was was names. Names was a thing and I think mm. we'll we'll just like the importance of a name and name changing. We'll touch on that as we go through. So what we see a lot of in this episode and one of those themes I think that's really prominent is I kept noticing women either being patronized or talked down to or dismissed entirely. Like we just see that. And that's a ama- that's not just this episode, right? You could you could say that about so many Mad Men episodes. But here, I think the plot like sort of literally went from one woman being uh, patted on the head, the next one being talked down to, to the next one being kind of door slammed in her face. The examples of this, of course, is, is first of all, Joan and Greg. So we see Greg, and I love the shot of him like talking right into the camera as if, you know, it's an interview type thing. And it is. It's a it's a mock interview that that Joan is doing with him. And it's clear... And you you know, there's no one on the planet that's buying what Greg says because we know Greg. But within the context of their conversation, Joan is supremely encouraging and is able to pick up because Joan is a people person and she has a very high emotional and EQ, right? 
she listens to what he's saying, um, knows he's frustrated, and gets out of him this. Again, jo- Joan's a better doctor than Greg is in every way. A better psychiatrist. She was a better psychiatrist in that scene. She was a better psychiatrist. Like, oh, what you just said—that's perfect. But she gets out of him in the real, in, in the real way that Joan can uncover things about his dad and his family and his what you know what kind of experience there was with with psychiatry and you know Greg does not think that's relevant at all right in fact he goes the head shrinker got us through but blah 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 and I'm like wow you you don't sound like someone is really enjoying getting into psychiatry but he he himself does his heart's not in it which you can't blame someone for heart not being in it um and I think Joan immediately shifts to what's got to be enormously painful and in, in, in getting through it is to say, look, I don't care what you are, you, but you've got to, you know, you don't have to be a doctor. The pressure isn't coming from me, Greg, but we've got to get this thing moving and you've got to get yourself in a place where you're contributing. And it's so perfect and she's so spot on and she knows how to talk to people and she knows how to be, be emotionally intelligent. And he doesn't give a shit. He, everything she says, he bats away. And it's, it was frustrating as a listener, as a viewer, to just watch him be such a dick, you know? Yeah. So she gives the great advice. I don't remember what it was, but whatever it was, was this great interviewee advice, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, about be genuine and be whatever, whatever yeah. that your was. Your personal story is the key to being, key, yeah. To being likable and to being approachable, but also in this exact field. And he immediately dismisses her like this, like, like her professional experience didn't count. He takes a shot about like pageants. Like, I'm not, this isn't a pageant. And she's like, do you know who I have fucking interviewed? Are you kidding me? And do you know who, how many people I've prepped for interviews or what, you know, whatever, whatever her experience is, we know. And he just doesn't, doesn't care. And I watched her face. She didn't flinch. She didn't, nothing changed because I'm looking for it for what happens later when she just snaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's not there. She is absolutely her, her stance of being supportive no matter what yeah. is solid until, until it isn't. Um, I also thought it was really interesting that they throw in this thing about Greg and his history. Mm-hmm. Now, a writer and a director, not to mention an actor, they could make a choice to have us feel some th- sympathy for this guy. And they, th- there was no <laughs> attempt to elicit that from us. Like, no. okay, it was all about... Um, Joan snapping. Well, before, but before that, in just in mm. this scene, it was just all, it's really interesting you never told me that. And then later he was like, that really is interesting that I never told you that, which that I thought was funny that he even said that. Like, but nobody, nobody makes anything of it. And, you know, I, again, I think in a different show, we, we would be, we would be a little torn now, a little feeling some like, right. oh, I get it. Or this would become I mean, the Greg episode or something. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, Greg has a flashback. I mean, yes, exactly. It's, it's, I, I just thought that was an interesting choice to give us that big fat nugget and then not be like, but, but we're, you know, not even attempt to undick him, if you will. <laughs> there, there's, well, that's a very interesting and it's very true. And I, I think there's an interesting alternative, almost like an, like a thought exercise to do here, which is, Turn this around, forget for a moment how we feel about Greg and look at it from the standpoint of, you know, Greg's been sold a bill of goods too as as a male. Here's what I have to do. Joni, I have to make you happy, right? Right, right up into the going to the army and what he says and this decision that he made, which is horrendous judgment. But he he's he's in this mode of you have to be 
um, taken care of. You have to be uh, dependent on me, and that's my responsibility. And you've got to, you know, just worry about having kids, you know, all this kind of stuff we've been hearing him say all along. And that's undue pressure because that's bullshit too, to some degree. So you can look at it again as a thought experiment from the standpoint of this guy's been brainwashed as well into thinking what his real mission in existing is. Um, now, poor judgment after wrong decision after poor judgment after and you know raping his fiance in the process by the way so this is by no means a an apology for for greg harris listen the 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 patriarchy has fucked over all of us yeah in in its own way but in in greg's slice of it the bill of goods he was sold that i see is is he's going to get everything and everything's going to come to him just because he wants it and he tries a little and i don't it's interesting, and this is an, this is one of these unknowable things. I don't believe that he has passion for being a surgeon. I think he <laughs> right. just decided that that's what he, you know. Now, counterpoint to myself, I will say, if you really want to get, I can't remember the quote, but if you really want to get at the inside of somebody, it's you know, more intimate. You can't get more intimate than somebody's guts. I no, actually thought that was an interesting surgeon thing to say. Right. So that was right. my only sort of hesitation on that. But for the most part, I don't believe... He gives a fuck about anything except being the best kind of doctor you're supposed to be. So I think right. that I think that Greg's flaw is his own blindness to his own privilege. Precisely, right? no question. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I right. also I just want to add that because right? because when I see him floundering, when I see him, you know, throwing punches in the air to try and get Joan to be happy, and especially that scene where he where he comes home and says he enlisted for God's sake, I see someone who cannot deal with the responsibilities he believes he has to himself, his wife, the situation. He doesn't know what it means to be a, a husband, uh, let alone a father, but he's he's all mixed up and, and he's and he's he's like he's like a drowning guy flailing away. And a lot of that's because of what's been fed to him. Now he hasn't done his own thinking, he hasn't done his own evaluations, he hasn't searched inside himself for, you know, maybe you know what what kind of doctor should I be or what's the best how am I, what, what's the best use of my skills and my talents, you know. He hasn't done any of that work. So it's not an excuse, but it is an interesting it it, it mirrors it's the mirror of Joan who's been fed this stuff and if you do this and you do this and you do this you get what you want, which is what leads to grabbing her, a vase and cracking a it swing. Cra cracking your your husband over the head. Now, it's a weird scene to watch when she does that. It's mm. it's a it's a, it, I don't under I don't understand the choice from the writer's standpoint. It's shocking. Um it's disturbing. I mean, that is she could have done anything else. She could have even whacked him in the head with her hand wouldn't have been as I mean, that's a we don't see the physical aftermath of that. That's that's a big fucking deal. That's how you knock a bad guy out. Mm -hmm. And I I don't I don't I don't, I don't not understand that rage. I just think it's a strange thing to come back from. I think it's a strange thing to go there and then he comes home with flat, like, and then he gets that he was the one who provoked it. Like, I mean, I, which kind of goes into his thinking, but I don't, I don't, it's a, it's a, I struggle with that. Look, the last thing, I think what, what triggers that, what, 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 what snaps in her is him saying virtually what I just said. Yes. You know, that's the, that's the immediate cause. I understand the snap. Yeah. I don't understand the, listen, people do violent things. And when you're as pent up as Joan, you don't know what's going to come out. I just, I found that to be very, I had a hard time believing that, actually. Yeah, it's a, that's, it's a little. That's what it comes down to. It's a little much. Soapy. It's a little, it's a little soapy. Yeah. I yeah. yeah. But um, I think, 
in the Mad Men quality that we're accustomed to, it's believable and true to these true to this character in particular because of everything that we've seen. This isn't like a two episode arc where she's getting tired of her husband. This is like the entire relationship, what it's based on, how they interact with each other, what's expected of her, what she does, how she acts, how she responds to things. This is not something she ever would have expected to do as a wife because she's not crazy and she's not, you know, out of her mind. She 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 it's a it's a I don't call it reasonable, but but it's believable. I think I, I didn't have that hard a time. I, I recognize it as being sort of out out of the ordinary. I don't find it believable. I I could see her pulling a knife on him and then not using it, like but be, <laughs> but but having it in her hand and thinking about using it. You know what I mean? Right. Like I could. I just I really have a hard time seeing. Okay. I, again, I I understand the snap, and this yeah, is yeah. a woman who's been raped and she's triggered and she's all of that. I just found that reaction to be like you said, soapy. Yeah. Now, sure. his his decision, though, to join the army, and I love when I say decision, like he took a minute to decide it, because I think he took a minute to decide it. He was it. accosted in Times Square and was vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> I just once once again, I see that as his his in, encased. He, he's sort of in this in a, his own little bubble of privilege. And I mean, he he makes it pretty clear. He thinks this is the easy way out. He this is not a man who's into hard work which is the irony of what he's about to do. He absolutely sees this as like the quick fix, easy way out, the magic pill. It's going to solve anything. Let's everything. Let's go out for dinner because right. we're rich now because I've made right. this great choice for us. Right. And that's why he chose it. There's no commitment. It's I get to be a surgeon like I always wanted to. He's going to be this horrible surgeon now, you right. know, <laughs> treating soldiers <laughs> in Vietnam. That's what he's going to be. But he, it's all about the quick fix. It's all about the what's the quickest least painful, most direct path to me having everything I'm supposed to have. Yeah. I, I, I'm unable to do all these things. I feel that my responsibilities are the quote unquote traditional way. And this, this is that. Now, I don't think he's lazy in the sense that he doesn't want to work. I think his talents, he's in a field that requires a fair amount of talent that you can get by on hard work to some degree. But if you don't have brains in your fingers, as the doctor told him, you ain't going that far. That's what army doctors might be for to some degree, you know. Um, but your talents are not a large part dictate. Other fields, you can build your talent, build your skills and do other things. Um, perhaps being a surgeon of this type is not one of them. That's my suspicion. So yeah, there's there's hard work involved. And I, and I think this is more of an emotional quick fix for him than it is a put the time in quick fix. Um because we, we don't know whether he's a lazy doctor or right. what. We only hear that he's not a talented doctor. That's fair. I, yeah, I don't, we, I mean, you have to put in a lot of work to become an intern. To get the most of your talent. There's been some effort. So lazy is unfair or an assumption that I, I don't get to make based on what we've seen. But yeah, I, I just still think, I just, I, it's still quick fix. It's still shortcut. It's still get me, to, get me to what's mine. Get me to what I'm owed. I am owed this it's life. Make this pain stop. I feel this pain over what I'm not able to give my wife, whether or not that's valid, should be that way, the right thing, whatever. Uh, and I need to make it stop. And he feels like a little boy and he feels unable to step back and say, all right, I, I made these mistakes. How do I correct it? You know, in, in, with with good judgment. <laughs> Here he makes it with bad judgment and quick snap decisions. And that's that's not going to get him anywhere. I don't think he gives a fuck about actual Joan and what Joan actually wants. I think he wants the bitching to stop. I think he wants the world to look at him as though he has done this correctly. He now has a wife who's 
you know, going to be working and who's been working and is going to be working again. He, mm. I think he wants, it's all about looking good. It's all about looking good. It's about looking good to Joan. It's about looking good to the world. I don't think if he sits down and goes, what's really going to make Joan happy? No, he comes no. up with army. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, the judgment's definitely not there. Or the, or the consideration. That's my point. Yeah. How I don't does this think, affect my I don't marriage? Think my he, God cares about Joan the human. He's proven that over and over again. What's important to Joan is not what's really deeply emotionally important and satisfying to Joan has nothing to do with what he cares about. It's what I can say I'm doing for Joan as opposed exactly. to what I'm actually doing for Joan, right? Um, so yeah, so I think that's one 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 branch on this tree of of women who who have, despite all best efforts, been been thwarted here. And that's that's Joan in this case. Well, I think the other I think the other kind of angle on that theme is these very competent women who are within 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 the restrictions of the society and of, of whatever their restrictions are. And Joan, obviously, we're seeing that now. The next thing we see, I want to just Joan and Joan going to Roger and that phone call. Now we're going to we're going to get to Roger <laughs> as, with the Annabelle story. But I I do want to just touch on that conversation. First of all, she, first of all, <laughs> she calls him and he's like, amazing coincidence that I answered the phone. She's she like, dude, I know Ginger everything. She goes to get her hair done, <laughs> right? He's like, she does? <laughs> oh, of course she does. And she knows his schedule and he's like, what am I wearing? So he, imme- he immediately goes for the flirt. They, they talk about, um, he, he mentions hookah and how uh, he's got everybody alphabetized, uh, arranged by cup size and where she would fit in. And she shuts that down, you know? So they, it's interesting. They have this rapport that is lovely to, to be a part of on this phone conversation, but she shuts down the blatant flirting. From well, him. she brings up cup size, by the way, it's worth mentioning. He says God by uh, organized and she says, I'll buy cup size. I bet he says, well, I know where you'd be, you know? Right. So they're, they're You're back. Right. At, You're right. It's not a, it's not a total, you know, invented, uh, flirtatious moment by Roger. That's very fair. You are yeah. correct. But he's game. He's always game. He's always ready. He, he's melancholy in this moment because he's just had this incident with Annabelle, right? He's, he's seen, he, he, he's, he's a little wistful for what was and all that. So I think the, the call from Joan was perfectly timed by her in his life and comes just at that moment. And, and, and it kind of gives this excuse for this awesome little exchange for them. Um, Look at you figuring things out for yourself. I love that. Look, I love that line. Everybody loves that line. Well, it's great. And it's true, right? It's, it's, he's like, how should I, oh, I can give him your number. (laughs) It cuts right to the two of them. And he, and he, and he then subsequently actually picks up the phone and makes a call or two, you know, for, on her behalf. So, you know, Roger's not doing that. Roger doesn't think of other people and try to help them very much. Remember how he didn't handle Jane with Joan when oh, Jane that's got right. fired. Yeah, precisely, exactly. It was right. exactly not that. He really does. He really. I think he he responded to two things. He responded to just hearing from Joan and just being, you know, he was touched. And he responded to maybe being useful, <laughs> you know, which he's not experiencing a lot of at at work. But let's talk about Annabelle. Let's get into that story. <laughs> By the way, this is the scene I watched. Uh, so again, when we were at the set, two episodes were happening at the same time, color blue and this one. And we were 
in the bullpen while Roger and Annabelle were in the break room. The, that and final it, scene. That yeah. final scene. It's so interesting how they film it where, you know, kind of, we, you know, that room is too small to have people in there. You've got um, Jennifer Getzinger out here in the bullpen watching mm. through the thing, you know, the monitor or whatever that is and the cameras are in there. So it's really, so we were out there kind of watching it happen and listening to it. Just cool. It was just, this cool. Very cool. It's awesome. It was cool. And I love the little, um, again, the sight gag of the last straggler walking in and immediately walking out. Of, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I don't want to be here. Yeah, oops. So there's this, this history, obviously we get, we get some details of it. And I think, you know, as much as I, first of all, I love this Annabelle character. I think, first of all, she's the character. I find her to be a beautiful character, physically, you know, uh, visually, and w- the way she interacts with Roger is really tender and sweet. And we see someone who knows Roger differently than everyone we've already met who knows Roger, <laughs> differently than Mona, differently than Joan, differently than Bert. Yeah, she knows. I say the real Roger. I think. I think everyone else knows the real Roger. She knows the the young Roger. <laughs> I just want to pause on who she, uh, who the actress is, because she looked so immediately familiar to me at the first viewing, and I had to go back. Right, I had to IMDb and go all the way back. Uh, the actress is Mar- uh, Mary Page Keller. She was in a show called Duets. Do you, you will remember that in the late '80s, Fox was reinventing itself, and it came out with all these great shows. 1987, this ran for two years. It was called Duets. It was with, or maybe Duet. I might be saying, I might, it might be Duet. It's Duet. And it was with this cast. It was Matthew Lawrence, Chris Lemon, Jack Lemon's mm. son, Allison LaPlaca, Jody Felon, all these unknowns, phenomenal cast, wonderful romantic comedy. Mm. And in the same year, they launched um, Married with Children. Oh. So they were having, this was like a new kind of channel at the time and 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 stuff and anyway that's why she i watched that show religiously and and she was the romantic lead and she was wonderful and she was again this very self-possessed this very beautiful you know, she's definitely kind of a more down-to-earth joan collins type visually i would say oh uh, yeah definitely a joan collins look right without question but anyway um, i want to throw that in because she's because because it was a moment and she was fantastic she and she was great and i wish we'd had more of her in fact in fact the, the her presence of this character um, felt a little bit like, and Mad Men doesn't do this very much, so that's why it stood out. But it almost felt like we need to throw someone in in order to get this backstory in for Roger, to have this moment about what his marriage to Jane really means, and then she goes away, right? And it would be nice if there were a more, I don't know, more permanent infrastructure to have to have arrived at some of this stuff. That's just me, but it it did feel a little a little. Not uh, 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 not soapy. That's not the word. But like um, she was a vehicle for to to yeah. learn more. It, it, you could see that she was a vehicle to learn more about Roger. Yeah, both Roger yeah. in the past and Roger where he yeah. is right now. Yeah, don't get don't get too attached to her, guys. She's just here for this, <laughs> right? Which is too bad because she was so damn good. I would want. I would absolutely love to see more of Annabelle Mathis. Yeah. No, it was an interesting. It was an interesting storyline on a few levels. The so here's another woman. She's a she's a business owner. That business came to me. She it was a little it was a little Joan Crawford, you know, in her Pepsi years, right? Like now <laughs> this is mine. Don't fuck right. with me, fellas, right? There was a little of that. A little. She didn't. Seem I mean, like no, a I'm not saying. Though. No, no, yeah. no. I'm not saying. Well, she she was a hard ass though. She was like, I'm out. I'm here. You know, kind of not really sure what I'm doing, and 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 I'm out again. And but she, ha- you know, she had some demands, right? It's. We're not going to change the name. We're not going to change the the recipe. Recipe, yeah. And I, I, there was one line that um, just interoffice wise, which was something about you know, let's get the guys on this. And I thought, guys, Peggy, P- 
Peggy is your your best guy. Although Peggy is your best renamer, and we're not doing that. But then Peggy was there, so but I was. Peggy's right. one they of just, the guys. Basically, Peggy is now yeah, one of the yeah. guys. That's no I question. wanted to uh, to get that. Yeah, it's worth noticing. But but listen, the the pr- of her mandatories. Um, not naming it is a misguided mandatory. It's a misguided direction. She she needs to get over that, and that's the problem. Is she can't get over that. I ended up watching that focus group scene a bunch of times because I kept not paying attention to a line I wanted to pick up. <laughs> um, so I rewind it like six times because that's me with ADHD. That scene gets better and better every time I watch it. It's, it's a fantastic <laughs> so scene. It's very funny. Turn it off. You, you can't. It's, <laughs> it's actually it. happening. <laughs> I laugh every time. Every time. But you've yeah. got, and also the whole, they're describing themselves when they're describing their dogs. My dog, you know, my dog likes school, basically. <laughs> really. And Don was like, have you ever been in a focus group before? First time here. Um, but it is Don Draper doing his job in that, in that way that nobody likes doing. Sort of going back, sort of like, sort of like Joan saying to Greg, dude, you need to get a job. Like, yeah. make a choice. Here's Don Draper like, do not give your money to the agency that says we're going to keep your name. Yeah, it's a sensitive client because of the history. And and I guess they were with the, the agency way back anyway. So it's a re- recurring, re- returning client. So Don does the right thing. It's a, it, I can tell the client that they're wrong and they will be insulted and they'll not hear me and it'll go badly. Or we can show the client that they're wrong and hopefully it'll go better. So that's the attempt here is to show, not tell, to, to, to demonstrate via this focus group that this reaction is guaranteed. Everybody on the Sterling Cooper side knew exactly what was going to happen. Well, maybe not Smitty, but everybody else knew. But she didn't want to hear it. And that was the open door for Don to say, listen, you're not going to get through this without changing your name, right? And what the, the line, which is a great line as well, it's not fair, but it's over. The, the line that jumped out for me, and this is where I started to see the name theme. You know, again, we've got the two themes that we're, we're pulling out. What are the limitations of being a, a woman? a woman with agency, a woman with with some power, a woman with intelligence. So here you've got Annabelle, you know, really coming in as a client and it yeah. wasn't fluffy. It wasn't it wasn't, oh, Rachel Menken, you're the client. Like we now know her, we know she's the client. She I loved her costuming and, you know, it, but she didn't get what she wanted. And I wonder if I wonder if she was uncompromising because she felt because as a woman she feels that she has to be uncompromising. No, I think the whole um it was my father for, for that mandatory? Yeah, it was emotional around her father, and that you know, again, we that sounds quaint to us. That sounds right because there's some soul behind it, and I'm not changing the name my father gave. Well, guess what? There was a movie out. It crapped all over your brand, and not, nothing, nothing you can do, or your the memory of your father is not going to overcome that. If you want to continue to have a business in this world and the the cards that were dealt, you need to change this name. This this name's not going to do it for you, and. That is, you know, that happens sometimes. It happens today. There's a, there's a, I know of a, a grocery store chain and out in the Colorado area where it's a family run business and they make very poor decisions, including that they made a name change, but they squished the old name underneath the new name. And it's just a whole stupid, big, big corporate decisions being made because this is what our family decided. And, you know, so there's, that still happens. There was a major uh, diet supplement called AIDS back in the, Early eighties. Oh, forgot about that. <laughs> okay, there was a y d s. Yeah, yes, a major, and it was national Huge. and all over TV. And guess what? All about I don't know that. if they, I don't know if they went away or if they rebranded at Nutrisystem or whatever the fuck they did, but they didn't keep calling it AIDS. 
Wasn't okay. it like chocolates? Yeah, it was. It was you know the, the same version of whatever the drink, right? But know, I, I'm shake picturing, or, yeah. picturing little chocolates. Anyway, it, it, but that's exactly what it was. And it's like, oops, they got they got crushed like a grape. All right, well, it didn't mean they were run, were running a bad brand or were. I mean, who the hell knows with those diet supplements? But you know, that's the point. Is shit happens, and you you either adjust or you go away. The line that jumped out at me was that name got us where we are. Do you think that was just luck? Now, who else in this episode might that line apply to? Yeah, exactly. Just wondering. Just curious. Exactly. It's true. <laughs> the, the problem in business a lot of times is you think what got you to where you are is what's going to get you to the next level. Sometimes that's true. Our values are going to see us through this tough time. Okay. Um, and sometimes it's like, no, you got to cut and run because because it's an unforgiving marketplace and that's how this is going to go. Those who really understand their own business judgment and making the right calls based on the where the marketplace is are going to survive. And this is not. And in this case, we see someone who is uncompromising for the wrong reasons. And that's that's a tough part. The product is good. It's high quality. Dogs love it. But the name has been poisoned. That name got us where we are. Do you think that was just luck? Now, let's talk about those two crazy kids, Annabelle and Roger. Yeah. So it's a very interesting storyline for Roger, it's very, or I- interesting for us, anyway, to watch Roger. I wonder a few things. Here's, here are my questions. You know, what, what he says to her at the end is, you weren't the one. So I would like to just put out the premise that I don't necessarily, be, I, don't, I don't think anybody believes there's only one one, because we all know that people who lose a spouse that was the one can get married again to the other one. So even even without like getting into like polyamory, like I just don't, I, I think we all have some understanding that there's more than one one. There can be more than one one. Yeah. So putting that in there, what we see through this progression is she's very, very, very clearly hitting on him and he is a no and he is saying no. He says, I am married, I am happy. She's the one I want to be with. And then when she really doesn't want to take the no for an answer or say, you know, and she, he kind of gives her the dig of you weren't the one. And I wonder if that's what he went into this with, or if he, or if like, I just, let me try this in words. It's interesting to see him be loyal to his wife because that's new. So you're partly wondering, or I'm partly wondering, is he, is the fact that he's just not really into going there with Annabelle making it easier for him not to, you know, to be loyal to his wife, or is it, or is it that he's really into being loyal to his wife? And the more times he says that it's, it sort of strengthens in it, it in himself. And then he's like, well, dude, you weren't the one anyway, where maybe she had been the one at one point, you know, that's, those are the things I wonder. Now there's one more thing I just want to throw in there. Jane's name is never said in this episode. Speaking of names, I promise you, I checked. It's her, it's my wife, it's she, it's the girl, it's the teenager. Jane's name is never said. And that is not, as you like to say, an accident. She doesn't exist. She's an idea. She's a figure. She's an idea to Roger. I, I'm sh- th- that's what I got. And then again, this whole thing of names. No, that's interesting. Um, but I do think that being loyal to his wife is incidental to this. I think he's not into... This old flame. I think. I think he remembers the good times for whatever reason. Perhaps it was, and I think this is probably the most likely. Although, again, we because this is such a fly-in, mm-hmm. we don't really have too much to go on. But I, I look. I can project a little bit onto it that um, being rejected is not going to make Roger take another crack like like this. I, I think he had his heart broken back then, so he's he's going to reject her. She's he's not going to fall for this, and so. 
if it was under a different circumstance, if it was a different ex-girlfriend, if it was some other, you know, story in the past that that came back, being loyal to Jane is not his his priority. But I think the more he says it, the more he buys it. Correct. I mean, who who knows what could have got who could have happened if if the phone call with Joan had gone in a different direction? Like, correct. He would have been all over that. Which is kind of my point. It's not it's not loyalty to Jane. It's it's who's doing the suiting. But we don't know that for sure. We no. I mean, I'm just we you know, I'm no, saying the thing with, with Joan and Roger that we just made up and played out. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe he's really trying on this loyalty thing. Like I'm a new man, except for that I still smoke and I drink. But this is the one area that I'm a new man. Right. Right. So it's but it's just an interesting look at. It's an interesting yeah. There's new, a lot. There's a lot you can version of you, Roger that doesn't correct. That doesn't feel solid or like it feels very temporary, right? And I would I would be there for every scene that this Annabelle comes back, and you know if it's if it if it's four episodes and that's all we get, and then she goes fine. But this one episode thing of of dropping in and doing this and finding this out and this little Hemingway bit, um, yeah, I wish you know kind of a little the the a very rare instance of either laziness or not not making carving out the room to do it perhaps better. Yeah, I went to the war and then I went to work while you watched Casablanca. Uh, it was a little heavy-handed, but you're right. There and there's a few throughout the series of these these one episode drop-ins that you do wish were four episode drop-ins, right? Like that had a yeah. little bit of an arc. Yeah, none more so than this. This one I loved. I loved her. I loved their their they felt like people who knew each other 40 years ago. Yes. Um so no, they had great chemistry. Wonderful, wonderful. I could watch her all day long with him, uh, all of it. But but we don't get it, and that's a little bit of a little bit of a miss. You know, she's as good a match for him, you know, on screen as Joan, but more so as Mona. Well, yeah, she's a contemporary. You could, which you Joan could totally is not. See, right. You could totally yeah. yeah. That's that's you're correct. I guess I have my biases. No, totally. But they're yeah, they're all great to watch. And it, look, the the through line, of course, is is uh, is. Um, John Slattery, right? He's great. So <laughs> John's great. great. Every, everybody's great with John, and John's great with everybody. John's great, right? It's it's awesome. So it's a it's a embarrassment of riches with all that. So yeah. So I think I, I think that's the, the, that's a, a, a second really good point about uh, what we talk about these women kind of being restricted. And the the third that I would put in that group also here is Betty. Betty goes to Philadelphia, has this meeting with her brother and the family lawyer about the house, which again takes five seconds, and then, and then Betty can, and William shows himself to be a putz and storms out of the room. And now she wants to talk with the lawyer a little bit, and it's reasonable that she would do that. How many lawyers does she know that she could confide in back back home? Uh, so this is one from the family. So one thing I wonder is, did she plan this? It seemed like she did. Did which you know? Did she get in the car or get on the train or however she gets there and and, uh, and be like, "Oh, I'm going to try to get Milton alone." I this is a lawyer. I so, could see that. Yeah, I could see no that question. too. But it was it was really interesting watching her say the words for the first time and and say that she was saying the words for the first time. It was it was there here. It was crystallizing for her. Like it's all just been in her head for so long. And then the, and then the latest you know each step of the revelations. She very rarely speaks of any of the things she's been dealing with. And now this one is huge. And then as she says it, and and she's almost winded by the words coming out of her mouth. And she says, I've been in a, it's like I've been in a dream since I found out. And now it's kind of real as I'm saying it. That was just, that was very powerful. It's a lie so big, Milton. <laughs> I feel like I've been in some dream since I found out. Just saying it out loud to you, this is the first time 
I'm realizing it's true. And that's the way people are. I mean, that's how it is to say something that's so important. So what, what, why this you know, falls into the, the, this category with, with Joan and with Annabelle to some degree has to do, I, you know, primarily the fact that <laughs> if you want to put lawyers in the same category as doctors in terms of how this um, show, <laughs> tr- show, show treats the profession, you know, here's just another, another old white guy telling Betty to take a deep breath, take a second all. He's not beating you. Yeah. Does he does afraid, he beat you? you? No. Does he him? provide for you? Yes. Yeah. Pats her on the ass and tells her to go back to New York. And it's like, you know, you just, if you're Betty, you just feel like, you know, what the hell do I have to do to get someone to listen to me, to get someone to see things the way I see them, or not just see the way I see them, but but understand the, the, the heft of this event in my life. And to get sort of patted on the head is really, 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 it's disrespectful, but it's also just... You're a wife. Go back being a wife. And she was super professional in her in her phrasing and all of her questions. There, uh, within the restrictions of of her life, she made a powerful case. And he, and here's the thing: he wasn't wrong. He was terrible, but he wasn't wrong. He wasn't, he said, he wasn't validating to her. He wasn't validating to her at all. And and that was, I'm certain. I mean, you you hear stories all the time about going back to Tina Turner and love what what's love got to do with it. I don't, I don't know if this was a real conversation or not, but it certainly was plausible. She, you know, her mother wanted her to stay in that marriage, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've mentioned, I think, that I do some work for a divorce attorney in New York State, and was just in a conversation last night with with a few different people about my work and about what different people have gone through and divorces, and as late as as recently as the late 1990s, one woman at the table said to me that when she was doing her own New York divorce at that time, she could not, they were doing it themselves, they could not get the papers through because it had, there had to be a reason, there had to be cause. And she finally said, basically, fine, he abused me. He was like, fine, I abused her. <laughs> and then she could get the divorce. Now, none of that is the case anymore. People mm. come to me all the time. I, I, you know, I talk to clients, potential clients and clients all the time, and they say adultery, adultery, adultery. And I say what I was taught by my boss, which is New York State doesn't give a shit who you fuck anymore. Mm. It's just not, nobody cares. It's irretrievable breakdown of relationship, which is the new language for irreconcilable, irreconcilable differences. differences. Yeah. Exactly. They don't care anymore. But that's very, re- my, this was late 90s that, that she couldn't get this divorce. It's amazing. Without you know, something like that. So, and what he said to her is you have to prove adultery. You have to be able to prove it in court and you're going to get left with nothing. And listen, I, I've never been, been through this process. You, you're closer to it than I am, but I imagine a good divorce attorney is as discouraging as possible to most of their clients saying, are you sure this can't like, let's not take this. Let's not take what I do lightly for you. <laughs> you know, is it workable? Is there therapy? Like, are there other options? Like, I imagine a good divorce attorney is not out there encouraging divorce. I don't know what other people do. I know that we, we do. I know that my boss sends people into counseling. She'll be like, you don't sound like you're ready. Go get some counseling. I don't know that that's common. Yeah, almost like a cosmetic surgeon. You don't want you don't want a cosmetic surgeon who's like got a scalpel in his hand when he's sitting behind his desk. You want someone who's. Have you thought about this? Is this for you? Are right. you prepared for the consequence? Like, right. And then if they go away, he goes, "Oh, thank goodness, that's someone who should not have been doing this." Maybe and yeah, maybe maybe not. We get billed either. We get paid either way. I like working for somebody with the ethics. I don't know what's common and what is. That's what I mean. I, I I would think that, and I I think the ethics probably are are somewhat common. 
you know, I don't think every, every divorce lawyer is out there shystering. I really believe that they're that they're doing it the way some, something along the way I described. Um, but but the point is, he wasn't wrong to discourage her from getting divorced, but he was wrong for not validating the importance of what she was saying and to provide some options as to how to handle it. He was basically saying, "Shut up and get back in your car." And that's what's that's the part where it's a. It's, it's yeah. the, you know, I'll put it on Matthew Weiner. Matthew Weiner's view of these professions is such that it it treats its uh, clients horrendously. But I don't think that was uncommon. I don't, that's I, that's what I'm saying. Back like, then, I think, no. But, but I think some of these doctors we've seen, it depends, right? Like we can go, we could do a whole episode on all these professionals. But that psychiatrist was a bad psychiatrist. That gynecologist was a bad gynecologist. Mm-hmm. The first one that we saw Peggy with, yeah. Joan, Jones. Um, I don't know that Betty's gynecologist was a bad gynecologist. Oh, the family I think doctor? that was more of the, or yeah, I think that was more of the times. I said it at the time. It's the one instance that we've seen that's really, you know, where he treats her, treats her fairly well. Ish, except he's like, I don't, he shut down her, her desire for an abortion, just like this guy shut down her desire for a divorce. So I'm not defending those positions, God knows. But I, I think mm. those were more, I don't think he's a bad lawyer. I just think he's. He's an old-fashioned jerk. Yeah, he's still he's he's still some old white guy telling Betty what to do, and it's just it's Betty deserves to be listened to, and she deserves for her plight to be taken seriously, and it's not, and that's that's the whole that's the whole point of it to me, um, in in, in this thematic part of it. So, and, and the other thing is, what I find interesting is is when Betty describes what happened, I found this information. What she shares is an indication of her prioritization. Right. There was an ex-wife. There's a house and an ex-wife. Right. Like you found an entire box of this and the photos and the naming and this, and it's it's really incomprehensible. And we know that she doesn't have the full story and she's trying to figure it out. But to go to the lawyer and share it again for the first time, and I'm speaking it and it's becoming real, uh, that indicates her priorities with that. And maybe that's what she thought a lawyer would respond to, or that's the part that has to be done to get a divorce happening or whatever. But it there just seemed to be a lot left out or maybe just the idea, as she said to Don later, you've been lying to me every day. Hey, family lawyer, I've been lied to every day. Maybe if you put it in those terms, it becomes more real. I don't know, but it's interesting. Uh, here's what I think now, now, now that I'm right now kind of putting it all together. So I do think she planned to speak to the lawyer. I don't know how much she practiced. <laughs> no. Right. Well, you do that, right? You be in the car, you be on the train, you practice. She might have come up with a couple of those key. I can't remember the one line that really jumped out at me as like he he's had some compromising. What was it exactly? There was one line that was very sort of clear. But you're right. The rest of it was really muddy. And part of that, I really think she didn't practice and it threw her off that she was speaking. But also part of it is she really doesn't know. She a lot of it is I'm seeing things that doesn't connect. I've been being lied to every day. He might he might, he has a secret past. It just, and then when it came out of her mouth, it's like, it's not that bad. Like what he was hearing wasn't, wasn't that bad. And it really, because she wasn't, he had a different name as, and an ex-wife isn't the same as secret identity, but she doesn't know secret. It's She barely knows confusing. enough to explain why it's so bad to her based on what she knows. So she, she barely, so she would have to sort of harness everything she knows about it in the right way and in the right sequence to make it sound as bad. But emotionally she feels certain and she is certain in the way that she was certain he was cheating in season two, um, that this is, that this is too much and she needs help and she wants to know what her options are. Um, and maybe she's already decided to get out of it. Who knows? I mean, that's the other thing. Is she dead set on divorcing Don at this point? We don't quite know. 
We don't quite know. I don't think she knows. I think she's yeah. in a in a panic. She's information gathering, basically. She wants somebody to make it go away. You know, dude, can you, I mean, like, you go to this lawyer, I, I, and I'm telling you because I know what people say to me still today. Yeah. Right? Like, I should be able, like, people have the thought, if I was wronged enough, somebody will di- take care of this divorce for me. I won't have to pay, <laughs> and everybody will just see what's been wronged and give me tons of money. So there is a little bit of a, of a if I've been wronged enough, it'll go away. And I think she has a little of that. Um, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes h- how you feel is so certain that you think that that carries the day. Exactly. <laughs> and, and well, tell me about this. And when I start speaking it, it sounds maybe not like nothing, but it sounds less than. And now I'm. Now I'm questioning everything, but but I think I, I think what's what's so interesting, and we'll, we'll we know we're talking about Don and Betty later. But at the end of the sequence, her face does not tell us how she feels when Don's going to work the next day. We get a shot of it when when he's kind of trying to look. He wakes up, the bed's empty. She's down there with the kids. He says goodbye. I'll see you later. And her face, she's a blank canvas at that point. I would say that her actions, her words, and her costumes do tell us. And with that, I think we should take a little break. (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) And when we come back, we're going to talk about Don and Suzanne and Betty Hofstadt Draper and Don Dick Whitman Draper. I don't know, Don and Suzanne? (laughs) Are we here? Are we we up to these two? Well, first of all, Don says he's going to clear his week. And I know I just talked about how Halloween wasn't that big a thing. So does that mean he was going to be like, I don't know, on a business trip through Halloween? Because the whole thing ends on Halloween, and yet he would have been gone for Halloween. You think You think Don was going to Wait, he said skip he, out what, on Halloween? When he said he's going to clear his week to who? To what? To Suzanne, when they're deciding oh. to go away. Yeah, I guess he was blowing off the kids. Why did they laugh about, why did she laugh about Mystic? Why was Mystic a yeah, silly I don't idea? No. Was it just like a kid? Was it like, Mystic's like, great? I th- is it sort of like that's what romantic people do kind of thing? Or you not? Know, I don't like, know. Like Niagara Falls. We're going to go to Niagara Falls. You know, I don't know. Like yeah. I've no, I have no idea why in 1963, Mystic as a destination got a giggle. I have no idea. No. Now it's just traffic on the on 95. That's what that's it right. means to me. So here, Don and Suzanne, um, once again, I tried. I, I, I mean, I'm not as hateful this episode. I, I think this is an, a more interesting look at them. I, I just, she, she just looks like a fake person. <laughs> I don't, I, think, I, I don't know what that is, but she just doesn't feel like a real person to me. And again, that's probably the acting, but sometimes it's just her face. I don't know. Anyway, but I'm not, I'm not going to, that's it. I'm not going to hate on this relationship for the rest of this episode. I don't think, unless I do. Um, you know, you brought up last time that the brother was the end of the relationship. And I think they even say, I think there's even a line in there. They're outside. No. So there's a man in here. He doesn't need to know it's me. I want you to meet him. I don't want to ruin this. Now that doesn't show up here, like as a vibe, but, but you're probably right. It probably was the beginning of the end and it would have been a longer end had this not been so <laughs> dramatically interrupted. But the two of them together in their romance and in their plans and in all of that, again, it always feels fake and weird to me. But if you take it at face value, he's just really bad at this. Like she's, she seems very, very practiced at this, right? I, I, I am starting, you know, I, I'm not talking to you about the future, but she's about to, she wants to. And then later it's, I absolutely, I'm starting to want more and I, 
I know I will get over it. It's a fact. I know for a fact I will get over I will get over this. I think that's part of the thrill and the the game of it is to how real can we make this knowing it's not real. That's that's a little bit of the you know the playing I, I, house. I will, I will willingly go over the line emotionally for the thrill of of this. I can, I can't, I will, I won't, I should, I shouldn't. Um, that that in and of itself is part of the thrill, I think. So that, yeah, that's right. It's it's not like a it's not like a rational thing of well, why is she going that far when she said she wouldn't? She knows better. It's like no, that that's it. That is the thing. That is for Don too. You know, yep. I, I, this is completely wrong on twenty five different levels. And that's kind of why it's so great. And it's just, that's baked into the, the whole thing. Now, what I do, what I will say is that um, Don's best breakup. Don has had yeah. bad breakups. He's, yeah. um, right, he, he crapped he his was pants great. right in Rachel Mencken's office. That was a bad one. He leaves Bobby Barrett tied up in bed. That's also a bad breakup. Or a good breakup, depending on how you see it. But I'll just call it bad. But aren't they talking again at that party? Is it the party after that? Well, they have to see each the other look, for business. The look, and they're great with each like, but they're in, they're still like I don't know. Like he leaves her tied up in bed, and maybe he doesn't fuck her anymore. But but they still got it going on when you know when. Yeah, I know, but they're both playing play acting. When her husband point. says, "Look at them," you know, they're not thinking about us, right? <laughs> right. It's not the last time he sees her, but it's the last time they're together. Together. Uh, let's just call it a bad breakup. And this one, Don pulls it together, phones her. Uh, can put her mind at ease. You're not going to get fired. This isn't about you. It's complicated. It was very interesting that her, her concern, let's back up one second. And I know this now jumps ahead because this is what we're going to do. Because we want to save Don and Betty for the last thing we talk about because, oh my God. But what I, what I saw this time with her hiding in the car. So, you know, she ducks down in his neighborhood in the car. She cannot be seen. And I really Correct. didn't understand the depth of her fear about that until she said to him on that call, Mm-hmm. is my, you know, whatever she says is my job, is my job in danger. Yeah. Like that's always there for her. And that's, I didn't know that. And that's valid. And that's interesting. But what I didn't notice, uh, what I thought about her sneaking out of that car in the past versus what I thought on this last viewing, I thought we were, I had always thought that we were seeing the moment that she finally gave up, that she finally figured it out. I think now what I saw was, now I, bear with me, I don't have the time, the clock timeline in my head. But what I saw was it was dark. I think she waited. I think she knew for many hours that something had hit the fan and she she was done. And she was waiting until dark to get out of that car. Oh, yeah, likely. That's a, that's a really good point. She couldn't go home. At, she couldn't come out life. of that car right. until nobody exactly. would see her. And I mean, she that's probably, right. you know, stuck her head up and looked around, make sure yeah, nobody. And if the know. wrong person is walking by, it's still She's curtains. You correct. Exactly. What I, what I took from that was a callback to... Uh, the running joke in Airplane when Ted Stryker gets out of the cab in the first scene and then he gets caught up and he has to take the flight and he has to land the plane and he's now in LA, uh, in Chicago. And the guy, the fare in the cab in the back seat is waiting throughout the entire movie. And every 40 minutes in the movie, they go back to the guy saying, when's this, when's this cab driver going to come back? <laughs> I took it like that. You're like, oh, that's right. Suzanne is still waiting in that car for, for the, for some redemption. Are you okay? Only you would ask about me right now. Do I have to worry about my job? No. So now here we are, the the the, the, the Greyhound with the 
the rabbit in her mouth. And that's Betty. So before we get into the into it, what I want to say is this. There will never be another first viewing of this episode. It, I worked very hard on this viewing to uh, recreate for myself emotionally, but you can't because what we all collectively did and anybody in the future, like you didn't think this would ever happen. And then at some point mm-hmm. she finds the box and then you still don't think this is going to happen. And it's like we collectively jumped out of our seats and we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like It's you, happening, like, it's happening. Like, Tell everyone it's happening. This right. is not what happens on television ever. As much, as much as a guy doesn't get run over on his, you know, his foot cut off in the office doesn't happen. Right. This never happens. This is madman at its madmeniest. And we were fucked up and devastated and riveted yeah. and all those things. And I just want to bring that a little of that energy right here because Yeah, no, we had we we had that mini cliffhanger from last episode where we knew she intends to confront him. You keep and... saying that, but I never knew that. I I remember the Betty who doesn't confront him about things. I know, but so... she's sitting there waiting for him to come home with a glass of wine after a glass of wine with the box sitting on the table. So to me that's indication of intent to to confront. So if that if that if we can go with that. We then have this entire episode, or the first half, let's say, of this episode. She's leaving with the kids to Philly. We know that. We see her down in Philly with the lawyer and what her intentions are there. So it's 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 been building, but we still don't have this like release of the tension from this. And when Don walks in, we still don't know if they're back. So even it was it was it was almost the same vibe as um the, the, as the wheel. Yeah, it was yeah, as the exactly. wheel. When he walks in and finds that they're gone, here he comes home and finds that they're home with that same, you know, coming through the door. He doesn't know. We don't know. It's like, oh, correct. Oh. <laughs> so that's the that's really the only. You know, even though it was a cliffhanger, we we know she she has this intent. At least I did. That 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 was the the back and forth. But we don't know what, that it's happening this way now, right here, because he expects to be alone on on this particular night. He thinks they're staying in Philly. Suzanne's out so, in the car, and, and Suzanne's in the car. He just runs in and and wants to hop back out. So even though it's a we've been gunning right for this moment, we still don't know what's happening. And that that to me was the the perfect way to perfect way to do it. There was another theme that I saw in this episode. It sort of ties in with the women. But it definitely comes up in this sequence, which is, and again, it's a, it's a theme that comes up in Mad Men from time to time. Who's the parent? Who's the child? Mm. Because in, with, Greg and, with Greg and Joan, she's very much speaking to him like a parent in a few different ways, both when she's coaching him kindly and then when she's like, you need to get a job, <laughs> right? You see this a few times. So Betty, Betty clears the deck. Kids, out. No, no, you're not even allowed to say hello to your father. Everybody out. Don, we've got to talk. And this takes place over what is good, probably going to be several hours. It, we see this happen in a few different rooms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He brushes his teeth. Brushes his teeth. So first, they go into the office. One of the lines that leaps out at me is, it's private. That's private. And that is such a child's language. Yeah. He, he's so terrified. He's, these two people are, God, it's a fucking masterclass from both of them. But she is 100% resolved. We are not, we are not avoiding one bit of this, not one bit. You stay right there, young man, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he is terrified and regressed. He tries a few, a few different things. Well, he's relying on a, on, a, on a conceit that is, I'm allowed to have my own private drawer. So no matter what's in there, 
you 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 uh, breaching my privacy is the crime, not whatever I have in there. So whatever I have in there is incidental. You've and he doesn't like pound her on it. He doesn't try and you know cudgel her with that. But that's his. That was the sort of underlying, I think, gentleman's agreement and all this for him. Sure, but that's also look. He's trying all his old moves until he until he finally gets that. Oh, she's been in the drawer, right? Right. Yeah. So it it all changes. He's all trying to keep her out of that drawer. That's all an attempt to keep her out of that drawer, even though right. he's got to know. You know, like he's he's like. He may not have a say in all this. Yeah. Right. He's just panicking in the like, maybe there's some universe where she didn't go in the drawer, even though she's had the key. And I love when she says, there's actually two moments that I, that one early in the episode that, that I'd like to bring back, which is as they're leaving on their trip. And she says, I only have $40, like as a test, like as, as a test for herself more as like, yeah. what is it exactly I've been tolerating? Is he really going <laughs> to fucking send me to the bank with these kids? And a, a baby, like, we haven't seen the baby, but she's schlepping a baby. And now she's got to go to the bank too. Because you don't have cash? You really, you don't have cash done? Right? So again, I think that was more of a test for her, like a reality check of like exactly what I've been tolerating. And also a, a um, foreshadowing for the fans, for the viewers. Sure. Of don't forget exactly what she knows. Oh, you know. and by the way, in that scene, oh, I just put this together. So I, I do want to talk about the costumes, but in that scene, she's wearing the blue coat, which is the same blue coat she wears at the bank with Glenn. With Glenn. Exactly. In season one. I just put that part together, the bank. Yeah. Anyway, love that coat. Love that coat. It's the bank coat. The other thing she says in, uh, that's, that jumped out at me too, but kind of about the, the logistics of this is, I could have had a locksmith here anytime. And I was like, oh yeah, you could have. Why didn't you do that? That's an interesting, it's just an interesting, oh, huh. Good point. She, I respected your privacy for too long. Which is not what she did, but she just didn't want to make that, she didn't, Maybe she didn't want to get caught trying. I don't know. There was something, that was a line she didn't want to cross. And I don't know that it was respect exactly. Yeah, a little respect, a little fear. People, it's what people say after the fact. And it's legit. It made me wonder, like, oh, like you could have done that. You knew you could have done that. I wonder what kept you. And again, I think a little bit of respect, a little bit of fear, a little bit of like, ugh, that's a line mm -hmm. I can't cross. I can't come back from. Mm -hmm. What I, what I, the biggest thing I noticed, I noticed this originally, but it kind of calls out more and more each time having this being one of the episodes you go back to for, you know, several times, at least in my case. And what I notice each time is when the jig is up and he's sitting down and he fumbles the cigarette and he finally takes a swig of the whiskey and he's talking to her and you, you're saying like, okay, what does Don have to say about this? It's not getting out of it. Don's not Houdini here. Um, he has to cop to it. What's he going to cop to? What does he say about this? What's his... To the extent, I'm sure he's got a game plan or at least had a game plan. If I ever get caught, what the hell am I going to tell Betty? And now is that moment. And what I notice is <laughs> he tells her almost nothing. I, what I, I find what he says less and less satisfying each time from the standpoint of Betty sitting there trying to piece it all together, from the standpoint of the viewer. Look, as the viewer, we've been, because of how intimately we've seen the flashbacks and Zahn's history and his parents and his childhood, we know it better than Betty does. So we have a certain amount of sympathy for what Don's been going through, right? We, we, we always talk about it, the burden of this guy every day being found out and what that's like and his birthday and how he has to, you know, and it's all self-imposed, obviously, but, but we do feel the heft, the psychic heft of, of everything that he's doing. And it's exhausting and Don's exhausted. We've said that. But when the time comes to explain it all to Betty, we, at least I, as a viewer, want him to explain it in a way that makes her aware of just how, of, of, without excusing himself, but makes plain the burden of this. 
and so that she can understand him in a way that we understand Don. That's like, there's this hope. There's this little thing inside me that wants him to like, you know, go through, you know, almost flashback by flashback, you know, the way, the way that we've seen it, but that's not possible. And that's not the way two people talk to each other in this, in this case, he's going to say the least amount he can say to get through this. And that's what he does. And it's wildly unsatisfying. Yeah. It's interesting that this is also something he's never planned. And you'd, you'd think this, he just, Don, Don, you know, Don sets it and forgets it. Right. So he, and if he had planned it, he couldn't have factored in how gutted he would be and how crippled and how, again, regressed, so regressed. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then there's, and then he's doing us, you know, a few of his old moves and some of them may be legitimate, but like, I'm surprised that you ever loved me. It's very manipulative. But it's also, and it's, it's manipulative and it's his experience. We know both of those things are true. I mean, that's correct. He was surprised. We saw him with Anna when he met Betty. He really, that was real. That's right. And it's manipulative as fuck. Right. And I think in the moment, it's more manipulative than real, <laughs> to be honest. Sure. He, I, and, I, I, and I think he, I think he did have a, something of a plan. And as Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And so Don may have had a plan that was, this is part of it. This wasn't how it was intended to be executed. I don't think you're Don and not have some kind of a plan in the back. Now, he had no indication this was coming down the road. So it's truly a, it's truly a punch in the face. He doesn't know this. So maybe he's just grasping at straws and what was my plan again? And now I have to. So I don't I, I, I'm not on either side of the debate of whether he had a plan or not. I'm going to think he did and, and fumbled his way through it. But regardless, um, what's wildly unsatisfying is just what he does share. You know, like I had to get away from those people. I had to take his name. There was a mistake. And it's sort of well, like, there was a mistake. Is, there was a mistake is the lie that he never corrects. Correct. And he doesn't pull it all together in a cohesive narrative for her to empathize with him, which is his opportunity. And now, again, I don't, that may or may not have been in anyone's thinking back then. But, but as a viewer, you want him to unburden himself in a way that is both authentic and elicits some sympathy from her so that, so that she can truly understand. Not so she could just take him back and be like, okay, I get it now. Case solved but in a way that allows their marriage to perhaps be strengthened and repair. But who knows? So here's what I saw. That's a good, uh, that's a, that is a good observation that it, it, he doesn't tell it in a clear and concise and cohesive way. I think, I do think that part of that is he's just really fucked up and flustered and never wanted to talk about it. And now he's, you know, I, I just think he, I think if, uh, I think if he didn't have such an emotional wrenching whatever about it he could have he could have but he didn't you're right about that could have don has the skills he knows his audience he knows how to understand get his audience's head to to make a a story work yes he's a very very gifted storyteller right yeah look here's what he does say i mean he talks about he talks about his whole upbringing now it's interesting about archie what what betty does know about archie is that he beat the living shit out of don doesn't even mention that in this episode, right? But right. but she already yeah. knows that. Now she gets the full picture, and he does tell that full story. Fuller. Oh, no, 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 no. The childhood completely yeah. tells the truth. Born, born. My mother was a prostitute. Died went died having me. I I went this. I went and lived with with Archie and Abigail. When I was ten, he died. She quickly marries Uncle Mac. Uncle, and he says he was nice to me which we've never heard him say that before. And that that's a little bit of a child language again. And it's a little bit of a 
God. I mean, if if that was like a big compliment, not compliment, but that was like a big elevation from him, like, because really nobody was, that right? That was the notable piece of his part of my childhood is he was nice to me. Others were not. He right? tells the whole thing except Adam. And then she says, who's Adam? And then that's it. That's when he, I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> that's when he loses it. That's when I lose it. And then he says, and I love this, and I'm going to read this intact. He was my half-brother, and he died killed himself. He came to me because he wanted help and I turned him away. Pause. I'm like, he didn't want help. Unpause. He didn't even want help. He just, just wanted to be part of my life and I couldn't risk all of this. He hung himself. He told the truth right there. He caught himself. He Mm self-corrected and he told the truth. And that was something. No, I think that's acknowledged and it's all true. But if you're Betty, we know what Adam meant to Don. We saw him chasing after the train. We saw, we heard them talking to one another and how the look on Adam's face. We have so much more information than Betty does. If all you hear is exactly what Don said, well, it's he's meaningful crying. because someone hanging themselves is a, is a, is a, something you can't forget. And, and we know that's meaningful, but, but j- 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 does she know what Adam meant to him he just because cr- he was his half brother? He cries the minute she says his name. How many times has she seen Don Draper cry? You don't cry over dead people. I'm not, I'm not saying he was hiding anything. I'm just saying that what he revealed was, was just, yes, it was truthful. And yes, it was emotional in the moment. I'm just saying that I think it's still 5% of the whole story. But that's how you tell a story. I don't, I don't know what else you want from him. Honestly, in that, in that, I don't know what else you want from the guy. I want him to talk about the train. I want him to talk about growing up. I want him to talk about everything. It's a whole life story. That's not, that's not how you tell somebody what happened. I don't care. That's what I want. You just ask what I want. That's what I want. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was unsatisfying. (laughs) I want more satisfaction. So what I want to talk about is what you said, which is about how she is the next morning and you can't see it on her face. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Betty, let me talk about the costumes for a minute. They very much broadcast where she was at. And the scene with the lawyer, she was sort of a little more fragile looking, like almost a little housefrau, a, a slight housefrau. It was like a conflict between being powerful and being not powerful. And then she's sitting behind Jean's desk as she has this conversation, but she, she didn't look match to it. And then when she's confronting Don, she's back wearing pants and a sweater. Plaid pants and a sweater was what she was wearing. She was wearing when she first got in, when she found the key and she first got in, it was red plaid pants. And this time, same outfit, except in gray, really cool, icy Hitchcock blonde. And then in the other two scenes in the next morning and then the next evening, maybe it's the same dress actually, (laughs) because maybe it's the same day, but it's a dress. She's back to being the perfect housewife which is, I think is the tell of how she's kind of opened up to, she's warmed up to Don. So that's the first indication. And again, great all throughout the episode. She says, do you want anything? She offer, you know, she offers him food. She's standing there. They're kissing. When they get to Halloween later that evening, you know, I could take them, you could take them. She said, well, we should all go. Like, I don't know what the future holds. Let's pretend that I don't know what the future holds. In this episode, what I saw is that these two people... You know, she says to him one more thing. She says to him the night that night is, "I'm, I'm sorry. I really am. I'm not That's even right. that right. I really think what I think in life is that when people get in communication, something opens. And what I saw was something was open up between the two of them. That's." That's what I saw. No, I, I and I, I, I agree. I saw that too. And I think what Mad Men's about and what we, without getting spoilery, what we see is we don't always know what that means. Sometimes that openness is everything and it solves the major issues. 
And sometimes it means that, okay, so it's open and that moment passes and not that things close again, but that it doesn't change everything. Yeah. And I think it's still a mystery as to how Betty, again, television has conditioned us to think that this thing's going to be resolved by the end of this episode, that we'll know what it means by the end. And Mad Men absolutely does not work that way. So what show have you me, been the, watching? I mean, <laughs> truly, right. So, so, but, but, but to me, the, the look on Betty's face is, is just a big question mark to the viewer to say, okay, how did, yes, it was all of that. It was open and I'm sorry. And it was a nice part of that conversation. And it did in a way um, show that openness. But Betty was just talking to a lawyer about how do I get out of this marriage? Is she, is she still thinking that? Is she still wondering? Did this, I don't know, half-cocked you know, story with Don about the whole rest of what was going on and the, the Anna and the house and all, did that do it for her? Was that satisfying to her? Now, the it, Anna stuff was very incomplete, by the way. That, that stuff is where he was much more choppy. I will. No, I agree, I agree with that. I, I still don't think he was complete enough about all of it, but that's just my thing. Uh, but he certainly wasn't complete by any standard on, on the Anna stuff. And the, and the war and, and, and all that. So, well, he lied. Li- he lied. Yeah, so, he, he didn't right. say, I so, took the dog tags. That's the... Right. So, um, so yeah. So I don't think we know very much at all about what, what Betty's thinking. All right. Let's all right. Uh, take one more break and we'll come back with quotes. Roberta, what's your quote? I'm always going to love Minnie Mouse. <laughs> now... I love this. I love it so much. I, I I love it for a few reasons. I love it because kids say those things all the time. And sometimes they're right. And sometimes they're not. And and you never know. I mean, I remember my niece saying when she was little, I am always going to love the Power Rangers. This is not a phase, mom. This is, I know you think it is, but it isn't. And guess what? It was. But it's an emotional truth. And that's that's why it's a great line. It's solid. And it's commitment. And it's like, I'm a person. It's it's a little that's bit right. of a, of, of a you know, I'm a person. <laughs> uh, well, I remember, Roberta, back in the day, you posted a photo of you in a Minnie Mouse costume that was <laughs> uh, a thousand kinds of adorable that that uh, I can still see when I close my eyes. So we're we're going to make sure we post that. We're going to share that with everybody. Yeah. And what and what that was. And this it was right around the same time. It might have been the year before this aired that um, I was singing in a dear friend's wedding and it was a Halloween wedding and I had to figure and oh oh and I was taking my ex with me because he lived in the area where this was and I was like you want to come to this you know uh, mutual friend's wedding so anyway you have to dress like Donald Duck so I I had to right no but I had to look a particular kind of adorable to see him and to be and had to be comfortable to perform in so I was like I'm gonna give you a mini mouse and then this went so that was the other reason this line jumped at me at the time Dan, what's your quote? And your, and your ex was Elton John, and he had the Donald Duck costume, <laughs> which was weird, but he had it. Um, yeah, but uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so Don't go breaking, Ma. <laughs> the, uh, the Roger and Joan conversation, he just says, you want to be on some people's minds, which is a great, great line. Great line. It fits perfectly in that conversation with them. But it's also, again, melancholy coming off of this. He didn't want to be on Annabelle's mind, <laughs> but he was. And that was a, something he had to navigate. But he loves being on Joan's mind. Joan, Joan, I wouldn't say like she's the one or she's it or true love but or anything she's like one. that. But she's one. And I just think we're reminded and we love being reminded of how these two get along when they're both in the right headspace. They're not always in the right headspace, but when they are, it's something. 
and this was it. And it's also an essential truth in life. You know, we talk about, oh, I don't, I, I'm living rent free in so and so's head, but the truth is, we also love. We want to know mm. that certain people. Yeah. You know, speaking of going to a wedding with an ex, like I, yeah. you know, and at that time, and you know, many years later, I don't care anymore. But I don't care if I'm on his mind or not. But at that time, I was like, I wanted to be on his mind. You want to, yeah. you know, that's a real, that's such a vibe. That's such a, a relatable thing. No, it's a great, it's a great thing to say. It's a great thing to say. This fucking episode. Whew, man. Who are you supposed to be? Wow. Hmm. That is just a punch in the stomach. Every time. Every time. You know, when you can watch an episode like this, when you know what's going to happen and you know what's coming and you watch it happen and you're just as jaw on the floor as you were the first time and that line comes up at the end, who are you supposed mm. to be? And that I mean, quick cut, yeah. You know, right? what we didn't talk and about- the song. And the song Oliver, which is the orphan, yeah. right? But what we didn't talk about is the symbolism, the gypsy and the hobo and the costumes. And maybe we can get into that in our uh, Patreon feature, Eminently Chewable. Let's do that. Eminently Chewable. Yeah. All right. We'll Y'all, this cool. is fantastic. And <laughs> I don't know what's coming next, but it might happen in November. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next week is The Grown Ups. Amazing episode. I think y'all know what happens. But if you don't, we have a conversation, exclusive conversation with Talia Balsam, who plays Mona Sterling. So that's really great. We loved it. She was wonderful. So you'll hear that as part of next week's episode. So we hope you love it. It's going to be awesome. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.